It is good to see you all this morning. I know um, that we've, I'm sure we've still got more coming, uh, but in, even in, in being fewer, we are mighty, and we are excited uh, to be learning from the Rabbi John Adlin this morning about theology and the, the environment, a Jewish perspective. Uh, just some announcements as we look towards the next few weeks. Uh, I will be uh, teaching the next four weeks, two weeks on the topic of Trinity, then two weeks on the topic of theodicy, why do bad things happen, um, where is God in all the bad things, right? So that's, I'll be teaching the next four weeks, and then we'll have some new teachers uh, on the weeks following that. So come back in December. I'd love to have you. But as we, um, before we start and jump into theology and the environment, let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day, another opportunity to learn from you. We pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to sense your nearness. May we, um, may we love you, Lord, with all that we are, and may we learn to love the beauty of your creation and become better stewards of it. We pray this all uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So before we get into my topic, tell me what uh, Rabbi Spitzer tried to teach you last week. It doesn't mean you actually learned anything, but what did he try and teach you? Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to see it. What did he try and teach you? You have to pretend like you le- didn't learn anything, but what was he trying to talk about? What? Nuance? I mean, I really have no idea what he was doing, so <laughs> I was just curious. He said he had a PowerPoint. That's as much information as I got out of him. <laughs> And then he said so he shamed me into having to make one for this week. So uh, I'm not sure. I'm sure that you're aware, and I hope that you will be uh, be there. But uh, Reverend Wallace is now the leader of the interfaith Thanksgiving service. I had done this for since I got here, and my retirement gladly encouraged me to hand it over to somebody else. And he stepped up to the plate. And he's also going to be the, uh, the person giving the sermon at this year's Thanksgiving service. So if you're in, t- this is really, if you've never been, is an amazing experience. There, I don't know, I think there's 13 different religious institutions, groups that are coming together. Um, and if you've never been to St. George's, Rom- uh, Rom- I mean, I can do it, Rom- Romanian Byzantine Catholic Church on 44th Street, it's a pretty neat place to go, go into. So I was talking you up. Uh, So please come. Uh, The offering that is taken there goes to the Thanksgiving baskets downtown. Uh, Yesterday at St. Paul's, they gave out uh, probably more than 1,150 bags of food and a turkey to all the people who had signed up. So the money that we get at the Thanksgiving uh, service is the seed money for next year. Costs about $30,000 a year for us to be able to do that. I say us because somehow... Um, I sit. I was invited to sit on the trustees, and when they said, "Every who wants to take over as the pre- chair of the trustees?" I was looking at my phone, and everybody else stepped back. <laughs> so I ended up as the chair of the the trustees. But I've been working with Thanksgiving baskets for the last several years. It's a great program and really something very important to this community. So I was trying to find out what they didn't want to tell me. What Rabbi Spitzer tried to teach them last week? I didn't or what they. Yeah, he dealt with the midrash. So now you guys are now experts in in midrash, and you're experts in the mikraot gedolot, which is the rabbis, the commentators' bible, which I brought to you the two weeks uh, two weeks ago. Um, so initially, Rabbi Spitzer and I were both supposed to do this, but he bailed on me to go visit his grandchildren in Seattle and tried to leave this in my hands to take care of. So. Uh, I did a little bit of work, just just figure out um, uh, about the theology and the story of creation. That's where I started. So, um, and now let's see if this actually works. So we start, oh, isn't that cool? <laughs> so we start with um, uh, this verse in Genesis, and because I have this ability to impress you, I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and then you can all go, oh, 
and then we'll read it in English. Aren't you in Go. So I didn't um, give you a little background here. I didn't have a bar mitzvah as a kid. I came from a very... Uh, what they would call classical reform Jewish home. And, and the old time reform Judaism um, didn't encourage Hebrew studies or bar mitzvahs. Uh, it really wasn't, and about the time I came of age of bar mitzvah in the uh, mid-1960s, it was just starting to creep into reform congregations. They had uh, gotten rid of that as a, an event that didn't seem necessary, and it was starting to creep its way back in. So about half of my confirmation class um, had that I can remember had a bar or bat mitzvah, certainly more bar mitzvahs than bat mitzvahs. That still wasn't yet popular by the 1970s. More Reformed Jewish kids. By the time I was ordained in the early 80s, I would say that most of the Reformed Jewish kids in the congregations that I served went through the process, and it didn't matter whether one was a male or a female. So I didn't study Hebrew as a kid. So um, I went to college at Washington University and had an advisor who asked me what I was thinking of doing. I'd put on my form business. I would have ruined, I would have ruined the economy. We would have had a, a recession faster if, if I had gone into business. And I said, well, what I really was thinking about was maybe becoming a rabbi. He says, well, do you know any Hebrew? And I said, no. And he said, maybe you should take Hebrew. So I went into a class called Introduction to Hebrew. So I thought it would be like every other introductory class. They'd start with the letters that are on the right there. And you'd learn the letters, and then you'd learn the vowels, which are those dots and dashes that surround the letters. No, you had to read Hebrew already. This was was Introduction to Hebrew, but you had to have a working knowledge of Hebrew. So the High Holy Days were early that year, and I figured I better learn Hebrew really quickly. So I'd made myself a, a, a primer, with all of the letters, I wrote them all down, I took it with me, I, and this is the most impressive thing, as a college student, I went to Rosh Hashanah services, unlike most of my other friends at college who didn't go to Rosh Hashanah services, I took the primer with me, and in one week I learned how to write and read Hebrew. I've never done anything like that, ever, and will never do anything like that again. So years went on, I learned Hebrew, went to Israel for a year, came back. So now I'm in rabbinical school. And I can, the very first year I was in Cincinnati, which is my second year of rabbinical school, I went home for the last time I was able to celebrate Passover with my parents. And my father, who didn't know any Hebrew either, my mother didn't know any Hebrew, but they said, would you lead the, the Kiddush, which is the blessing which we use wine to sanctify the day with? And I read it, and my father said, all that money's been worth it. He was very impressed that I could actually, he went, ooh. All right, that's a long thing to get to the word in red. It's an interesting word, because if you have a Bible, it may translate that word differently. It may say, have dominion. It may say, master. This word, uh, so the word on the right, it has five letters. You don't have to worry what they are, okay? has five letters. Hebrew, first of all, is read right to left. So you have to turn your eyes around now and start with the letter on the right. The letter on the right literally means and. So you get rid of that. And then you have four other letters. The, uh, the letter at the end is um, something that's been tacked on to, to give it um, a directional kind of thing. So the three letters in the middle, that's what we call the shorish or the root. Every Hebrew word Every is always with a qualifier, because you can't have every. But every Hebrew word has a three-letter root. And that's how Hebrew works. It works from three letters and then builds out both uh, forwards and backwards and and with that kind of thing. So that word is a weird word, because as I'm going to show you, it has more than just uh, the meaning of rule. So there's the word at the top. And there's the, the, what we call the shorish, the three-letter word at the middle. So far, ain't you pressed? I can put something at the top and the bottom. I'm really, this is, <laughs> you, there's going to be better stuff coming along. These are all the things that that word can mean. Sheep, keves, is sheep. 
conquer, subdue, suppress, refrain. I love pickle. Preserve, surface, occupy, thrust. I'm not even sure what tup is, ramp, roll. All of those words, that's what it can mean. So our translations oftentimes use the word master. So here in lies the problem. Is it master? Is it subdue? Are we supposed to master the world? Are we supposed to subdue it? Are we supposed to rule it? Or conquer it? Or pickle the world? She likes that one over there. <laughs> or sheep the world. <laughs> you know? What, is it? what are we trying to learn? So, don't read that yet. Just look at me. So, we're going to go back. Remember, two weeks ago, I made your eyes go round in circles with that small Hebrew type and that, that book, the Mikro Gedolot. But the most important of all the people in there, I told you, was Rashi. He was the first commentator. So I thought I would do what, I, what we did two weeks ago. I would go into the commentators, and I'm sure that they would enlighten me and uplift me with their words about what this word meant to rule it or master it had to say. So this is what Rashi had to say. The Hebrew verb is missing above. Above was like that first letter on the right-hand side. I mean, oh, God, why did I do that? There it is, it's like that first letter. So what he's saying here, and I'll come back to that, is that the, the, there's in the midst of this word, sometimes that vav, which can be a vowel as well, is missing from the inside of it. Implying that one could also read it was directed to the male. So this whole command to have mastery or dominion or to rule was directed not to, not to everybody, but to the male. And it meant master her. So I told you that last letter and word was a directional, what the direction was towards the female. So the, the male was to master her. The male dominates, and then I'm reading this, and I'm going, really? The male dominates the female to the extent that he prevents her from spending too much time out and about. Moreover, it teaches you that the commandment to be fertile and increase applies only to the male, which we, is true in Jewish tradition, to whom mastery comes more naturally, but not to the female. And I went, that, it didn't help. <laughs> I just had to say, it, it didn't help in theology and the environment. So then I went to Nachmanides, who's the one who's the long-winded one. He writes... God, he gave them power and dominion over the earth to do as they wished with the animals and all the other creatures, to build up and to tear down, to carve precious metals out of the mountains and everything else that follows from this. They should rule the whole earth. And I said, you're not helping me. Because he's, he's the despoliation of the earth. He's gonna, they're gonna, they have no regard to the sense of environment or ecology or anything like that. And I thought, these two men who I revere totally blew it for me. So I said, we can, we can do better than that. We can find going back into that first verse and that thing, how do we, what are we supposed to do with the world? Are we supposed to master or subdue or rule or conquer? I went to my tradition. Praise be, as they say in, in uh, the Handmaid's Tale. <clears throat> as heirs to a tradition of stewardship that goes back to Genesis and teaches us to be partners in the ongoing work of creation. Finally, what I thought that Rashi would say and Nachmanides would say that we're all supposed to be partners because the irony is this is how I've always been taught. And this is how they always would tell me this is what tradition teaches us. And yet when I went to look at tradition, tradition didn't teach us this. Nachmanides and Rashi didn't teach us this. We're, used, we're saying that tradition teaches us, but really it's more contemporary Judaism that has read the text in this way, that we're supposed to be partners in the ongoing work of creation. We cannot accept the escalating destruction of our environment and its effect on human health and livelihood. It is our sacred duty to alleviate environmental degradation and the human suffering it causes instead of despoiling our air, land, and water. As I said, that's what I had hoped our, our, the old rabbis would say. The other ones, remember, there were four or five on the page. They didn't comment on that word at all. It was only Rashi and Nachmanides, and what they gave me, I'm hoping I never see that again. I will not, if I ever have to teach this again, I am not looking at those people. That was not good. So reform Judaism, that's the movement that I 
uh, represent. I went to a seminary, the Reformed Jewish Seminary, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio, has branches in Los Angeles and New York and, and Jerusalem. I went there, and it's the tradition that I grew up in. It's the tradition that my mother grew up in. It's the tradition that my grandparents grew up in. It's the tradition that my great-grandparents and my great-great, and even going far as far back as we can trace to my great-great-great-grandmother, whose grave I recently visited in Philadelphia. We didn't even know it existed until recently. And I was there, and I went to stand at this grave, and she was part of a Reformed congregation. Reformed Judaism as early as we can understand this notion of having, having, taking care of the world in some fashion, Reform Judaism has been there. Certainly in the last 30, 40 years, as the environmental uh, movement has become something that I embrace and, and treasure. I embrace and treasure so much that they decided, whoever they is, to make Earth Day my birthday. <laughs> so April 22nd is my birthday, and you can get B-E-A-R-T-H-D-A-Y cards, and that's what people give me for my birthday. Uh, so it just was perfect. I was the kid at home when I was 11 or 12 years old who said to my parents, we need to recycle the newspapers. My, my father grumbled a little bit, but every few weeks we'd throw them into the trunk, take them to a place and recycle. You couldn't, there was no place to that I, you could take cans and plastics and glass. Well, glass used to take back to the, only those of us of a certain age can remember taking the bottles back to the store for money. <clears throat> um, so that's how you recycled back then. And as the 1980s came about and I became very aware, I was so proud that my movement was at the forefront of working on ways to embrace um, the environment in our tradition and in our movement and in the words uh, that we believed in. So here are some texts. We always have to start from texts that help us understand the Jewish environmental passion. So the first one comes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord, Lord's, or the earth is Adonai's and the fullness thereof. That to me is really one of the key lines and the Psalms that talk about our relationship to the world around us. We may give, and however you want to view God's role in creation, we may give the sense that God created all. We're just going to leave that very loose like that. You can, you can narrow it or expand it however you want. But that this earth that we stand on, this universe that we, we live in, is a creation that we have to embrace. And everything in it really, in essence, has that sense of creation. Whether it's the littlest molecule or the largest animals that exist or the largest galaxies that exist, they're all part of this unique sense of creation. So one of the things, you know, you aside, because we're not going to pick on kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When I teach confirmation, confirmation in the, in the Jewish movement is 16. And I know that 15 and 16-year-olds can be a little uh, problematic in their ideas about believing in God. And it's okay. They're testing the waters. They're pushing the limits. They're figuring out where they want to go. So I always will talk to them. I said, well, let's try and figure out uh, where this universe came from. And they'll all say, well, it came from the Big Bang. And my, argue, my answer to that, I can't say that, that, that this is the doing of God, but at least it leaves the mystery. What existed before the Big Bang? What was there? At some point in the billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and probably billions times billions of years that uh, the universe has existed, some point, somewhere along the line, there was nothing. Because you couldn't start with something. You had to start with, with nothing. And out of that nothing came all of this. Where, how, wherever it is in the universe, whether it's a, a rocky planet, a hot planet, uh, a sun that goes uh, nova, that becomes a black hole, anything, it's all part of this incredible sense of creation. And I am a part of that. For the few years that I have on this earth, I'm a part of that. And hopefully, whatever molecules are a part of me, they will exist forever in some form, in some, in some fashion. So the earth is God's and the fullness thereof. Everything on this planet 
is our, response, is our responsibility. And there's nothing that, and, and look, and, and I'm not perfect. I drive a car that puts carbon monoxide into the, into the uh, atmosphere. I have a home that's heated. That electricity has to come from something. Um, uh, I do try, I am part of, I, I don't use um, the energy that I use, not the gas, but the electricity. Um, I have a nephew-in-law who runs a, uh, a, a company out of Washington, D.C. called Arcadia Power. And I actually pay him, pay his company, not him, his company for my electrical power. And what that company does is ensures that in some way or fashion, some of your power comes from uh, renewable energy. It's a really interesting. Now, it may not always be mine, but people are, have access to the grid that way. And I feel at least I'm doing a little bit of something out there to hopefully make, uh, make a difference. We all, in some way, despoil the earth. We can't be perfect. But at the same time, we can be more on the left side of that picture than on the right side. We can pay attention to those kinds of things because we only get one shot at this earth. And if we totally make it towards the right side of the picture, that's a pretty dire picture. There were worse ones out there, but I could, that was, this was about as bad as I could put up there. We are offending God and God's creation. So there's something called Baal Tashkit, do not destroy. And it is a, a phrase that comes out of the Talmud and reminds us that we as Jews are part of this world and we have a responsibility to, in some way to be connected to it and be responsible for it. And that sense of responsibility is what is so important uh, to me. So here's a great story. Does anybody want to read? You want to make me read? You want to read? Read the story. It's, it's pronounced Choni. Choni. Okay. The Talmud tells the story of the sage Choni who was walking along a road when he saw a man planting a carob tree. And Choni asked, how long will it take for this tree to bear fruit? Seventy years, the man replied. Choni then asked, are you so healthy that you expect to live that length of time and eat its fruit? The man answered, I found a fruitful world because my ancestors planted it for me. Likewise, I am planting for my children. In fact, tradition values this concept so much that the rabbis teach that if a man is planting a tree and the Messiah appears, he should finish planting the tree before going to greet him. Interesting story, isn't it? There's a parallel story that also talks about the sense that it may take 70 years and you may not be here, but it's our responsibility to plant the tree, even for those. I'm sure some of you in your yards and in your homes have planted a tree, and um, the tree, you know, 20 years into it is still it's looking like a tree, and maybe at some point you're no longer here. That tree keeps growing. It keeps giving in some way or another. And Honey, Honey, uh, this is a story that appears numerous times in the Talmud because it's a story that reminds us that um, first comes the world. First comes um, the things that we can do in the, in the here and now. So even though Reformed Judaism may not believe in the sense of a personal Messiah, Orthodox Judaism or Judaism believes in the sense of the Messianic age and that before you go to worry about that, you've got to take care of what is, what is going on uh, right now. Uh, it's just too many of us, it's all about what happens, what's happening today, what's happening now, and not thinking about tomorrow. Some of you, many of you here may have grandchildren, children, grandchildren. And uh, are we doing the things to make sure that this world will be the kind of place that they can grow up in healthy uh, in the years to come? So Honey's there to remind us about that. He also has another story. He's called Honey the Circle Maker. He has a story that talks about uh, the time that there was a drought in Israel. And this is, he challenges God. He says, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna draw this circle around me and I'm not leaving the circle, God, until you make it rain. And somehow his prayer was answered and there was a deluge. I said, not that much. There was a little bit, could we have a little more? And the right kind of rain, and then he left the circle. 
<laughs> so Isaiah teaches us to till and to tend. I the, Lord, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and high places and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. So we have the Psalms. We have the prophets teaching us about our responsibility. We are given our planet as a loan from God. We are, in essence, a loan from God in our lifetimes here. Our planet is a loan from God. Uh, Just as we shouldn't do things to be destructive to ourselves, we shouldn't do things that are destructive towards our planet. So I'm sure like many of you, we're going to have a uh, house full this weekend as Thanksgiving. And I was, as I was leaving today, we have, I live in Jackson, so they don't come and pick up your recycling because they, they, you have to take it to the recycling center. So I have bins that line one side of the garage, one for paper, one for paper, one for plastic, one for, for metal, one for glass. And I have to remind my relatives while they're here, not that they're not attuned to it, we recycle everything that can be recycled, you know? I also have a pickup truck, so it's really easy to put it in the back of a pickup truck and take it over there. Yes, I am a pickup truck driving rabbi. <laughs> so, three major focus of Reform Judaism environmental movement. This is where you get to see my real PowerPoint skills. How about that? Ooh. <laughs> Climate change. clean water, and environmental health. Those are the three focus of Reform Judaism in regards to the environment. So the first one, climate change. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that many of you are very familiar with. In Hebrew, it reads, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof. Justice, justice shall you pursue. Now the word justice, the word Tzedek is an interesting word because it's not, you know, just like that, the other word, keves, could have several meanings. This one, tzedek, also means righteousness. Um, our kids in religious school, uh, one of the traditions, and it was a tradition that we were doing when I was in religious school, is they would bring a little bit of money. When I was in religious school, it used to be a quarter. Today, I think the anticipation is they bring a dollar, but whatever. And they call it sadaka. The kids often first learn that the word sadaka means charity. So we have to teach them. Because they're giving and they're putting it into a little box, and that money is collected. It looks like charity. But the word really means righteousness, or maybe justice. So when you give that money, and we collect all that money, and eventually the religious school at the end of the year will make a decision where they're going to give that money. The students will make some sort of decision on that. Um, the, uh, it's the act, the act of righteousness, the act of justice. It's not just charity. I was talking to um, somebody at Habitat uh, this week when I was working there, because, you know, the, it's Habitat is really an organization of righteousness and justice, and I was talking to them about the, the steps, Maimonides' levels of what's called tzedakah, Maimonides' levels of righteousness. And the top level is teaching someone to be able to do for themselves, you know, just like Jesus, you know, teach, go fish, you know, did he say go fish? Something like that. He turned fish into a lot of fish. I'm not sure you can feed two people with it, but somebody had to go catch those fish. All right, so I was, I'm not exactly. We're still working on the New Testament. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you, you teach someone. You teach someone how to work with their hands. You teach someone how to, to farm, how to cook, how to do the kind of thing so they can take care of themselves. I forget what the lowest level is, but the lowest level would be the kind of things where you take the money, you take some money and you hand it directly to the person. So they know who you are, you know who they are. And that's a really sort of demeaning sense, but it's still tzedakah. Even though it's the lowest act of the eighth, and I'm not sure if that's exactly the lowest one, even though it's the lowest, it's still tzedakah. But there are ways to do it more graciously, such as the donor is anonymous and the receiver is anonymous. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a kinder way. When you um, take donations to someplace from here, um, you take it and, you know, it's, 
it's very possible, you know, sometimes there'll be leftover food and we'll take it to like the refuge of hope. We don't, you know, they don't know who we are. We're just taking and dropping it off. The people who are eating that food don't, don't know where it's coming from. They feel blessed. We feel blessed. Everybody feels they've done an act of tzedakah. So there are different levels of this, and you can look it up um, uh, on the internet. So here's another verse that helps us with this understanding this. When one loves righteousness and justice, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the eternal. Poor nations are likely to bear the brunt of the negative impacts associated with climate change. We are blessed in this country with so many natural resources, but it doesn't happen everywhere around the world. And our actions and our, the way that we do things will impact. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation. I'm not going to get into the politics of this, but there's a lot of com- com- conversation about, well, this country shouldn't do things if some of the other big industrial con- countries don't do things. And my argument is, you know, sometimes if you just take the first step, other countries will follow instead of trying to make it, well, my, my you know, my toy is bigger than your toy. My economy is bigger than your economy. Uh, I'm going to do this only if you do this kind of thing. You know, those two brothers who are fighting. And it, it doesn't work. Sometimes if you would just do the right thing. So there's a story in, it's told about uh, a man named Nachshon. He's in the story of ex, uh, Exodus. But the, this is a midrash on that. Now that you're all experts in midrash, and maybe even Rabbi Spitzer used this one, but I, did he talk about Nachshon? Good. So at Passover, we talk about this because the the Israelites get to the sea, get to the edge of the water. And we know eventually in the story, Moses raises staff and the waters open up. But the Midrash is, even though the waters opened up, nobody wanted to take the first step. Nobody wanted to go first. Nobody wanted to be there because they were frightened. And this guy named Nachshon, finally, he took the first step. And once that happened, everybody else followed. So I believe that we as a country, we have this incredible resources. Let's take the first step. Let's begin the process of working on making this world and this uh, a better place for all of us to live. Reform Judaism says our energy policy must also be equitable and just, and the countries most responsible for climate change should be the most responsible for finding a solution to the problem. So our sacred texts teach humankind has an obligation to improve the world for future generations. I've said that. We can't just say, well, I'm old and I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know what? I've got a grandchild. I want to make sure that they can grow up in a, in a, in a healthy world. Jewish tradition encourages families and communities to reduce their waste and make smart choices. There are things, and I won't get into all the details, about packaging. So anybody ever here bought an SD card for their camera? The SD card is this big, and the packaging is this big. And I go, why? Because they don't want anybody to steal it. We'll find other ways. But the packaging on that kind of thing is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And you'll see this. Maybe on Christmas Day, if you're with your children or grandchildren opening up presents, look at the packaging and the plastic and the waste that comes with all of that. Investing in companies, being, um, uh, what is they? what's the word? Ecologically, environmentally just, is that what, environmentally just in, in one's investments. Trying to invest in things that, do the right kind of behaviors that make the world a better place. So the second thing, climate change was the first, clean water. So water has a special place in Jewish tradition, has a special place in your tradition, because two weeks ago, there was a baptism taking place, and water is a sacred part of that. So how does it figure into Judaism? Uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, at the well. Moses saved from the water. The Red Sea parts. Miriam gives the gift of water in the desert. 
There are probably other ones. There have got to be other ones in, in Christianity. I'm looking at the reverend now. Okay. 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 So, you know, if you've ever been to Israel and you've gone down to the Jordan River for one of the, where you see the baptisms taking place, water is just very powerful. The most amazing, there's actually water in the Jordan River. But even once you get the water in the Jordan River, this spot that's down near Jericho is, you know, it's not my baptism, it's not my tradition, but I sat, I sit there and it is such a powerful spiritual experience watching all these people go through their baptisms down at the Jordan River. That spot as a, a place where tourists would come didn't exist when I went to Israel. I mean, the place existed, but the buildup of the infrastructure didn't exist in the 1970s when I was there. It didn't even exist in the 1990s that I can remember, but since the turn of the century, when I've been to Israel, we've made my trips to Israel stopped there a couple times. And it's a really uh, very powerful. Water plays this unique and powerful role. Jewish tradition has long advocated that all governments take appropriate measures uh, to remove or ameliorate the growing threats of environmental pollution and to afford protection to the environment. They also, governments, the world needs to make, ensure clean water. That we, have, that we know that when we turn on our tap, that the water we're drinking is clean water, or the water we're using in our fields is water that can be used there. We were, when I was in Israel a little over a year ago, um, it wasn't on our itinerary. I've used a guide there for many, many years. He's become a personal friend. He stayed at our house. We've stayed at his house. That I took a trip that was designed for people who had been in Israel before. So, was, so we didn't have to do all of the stuff that you do when you go on the first time. We didn't have to go to Masada, and we didn't have to spend some time. We, didn't spend, we went to the Holocaust Memorial Museum, but we didn't, to Yad Vashem, but we didn't do the regular tour. We actually met with somebody and had a conversation. But we were in Tel Aviv. It was our second day, and our guide got us into these, it's called the Innovation Center. And you go into this building, it's a, it's a, a tall building, and on the bottom, you go into this room, and then you get a little presentation, you go into this other room, and you see some of the innovations that the scientists and inventors in Israel have created. And one of the things they have there is making water, taking water from dry air. So it's, it's, a, it's only about this big. And you can set this down. The, the hard part is battery life to making sure the battery can sustain it. But it will pull moisture, whatever moisture there is out of the air, and it's potable water. And I thought, this is just incredible um, that they can do this. I've seen uh, other inventions for use in uh, areas that have lots of water, but the water is not clean, and how to be able to clean, clean the water. Uh, we know that one of the problems in Africa is, dig- is they aren't, the, the people aren't digging the wells to get down to the water, and there was that great story about the kid in, it was a story about him and how he invented, how he brought together all sorts of, the, 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 the one who invented the wind or something like that. It's a book. It was a great book. And he went through scrap. He read books, went through scrap, put something together to be able to have a, uh, a pump to create a pump that would get down to the water. Once they could do that, then they can irrigate their, their farms and things like that. So water is very, very important, and we have to treasure that. We need water that looks like this, and we want water to drink that looks like this. And the final one, environmental health. So there's a, a statement in... in in, in Judaism called pikuach nefesh, the saving of a life, that it's, it's one of our commandments, that you are commanded to uh, do pikuach nefesh if the opportunity is, arises. You like that one? That picture came in? That was really me wearing at my best. <laughs> so once we turn to Leviticus, don't stand idly by the blood of your neighbor and choose life that you and your descendants may live. Those are reformed Jewish women on a march somewhere, and uh, they're using that particular verse. So it follows that Jewish values command us to preserve the earth and its varied life for our sake, and not only for our sake, but for those who who have yet to come. It's our obligation to preserve human life by educating ourselves, 
about the dangers of the environmental health risks and working to, pre pre uh, to prevent them for, uh, for the sake of humanity. This is our traditions. It's not my tradition. It's our tradition. You know, here's the thing. If you want to claim the Hebrew scriptures as part of your scripture, you got to claim what it says. And not just the one or two things that really that may, uh, that may help being a Christian or underscore Christian theology. you got to take all of the good in there. And Genesis commands us, in my opinion, to rule the earth in a manner of love and kindness and caring. I don't think we should have, we should have, we can have dominion over it, but we shouldn't subjugate it. It's not for ours to do whatever we want. It's for us to be a partnership with God to make this world the best place for all of us to live in. And I think, so when God created the first human beings, God led them around the Garden of Eden and said, look at my works, see how beautiful they are, how excellent. Take care not to spoil or destroy my world, for if you do, there will be no one to repair it after you. From the Midrash. So we're, this is a final prayer. So we have a holiday. You can ask the final, final prayer. I'll just have the next to final prayer. <clears throat> There's a holiday in Judaism. There's a lot of holidays in Judaism. This holiday in Judaism comes in the eh, January, February time frame. You can see it up there. It's called Tubishvat. It The name is overwhelming because the two are two Hebrew letters that together form the number 15. And Bishvat means in the month of Shvat. So it's really not a complicated thing. Tu Bishvat, the 15th day of the month of Shvat. Um, and uh, in Judaism, there are four New Year's. Not four like January 1st. Four New Year's, four moments that the year begins. The one that everybody's familiar with is Rosh Hashanah. That is the spiritual New Year and actually comes on the first day of the seventh month of the year. The first month, and that's in the fall. The first month of the year is in the spring, around April, more or less. And that is the, uh, how we reckon when the actual uh, first month comes, when kings were... Uh, uh, when their reigns would begin, that's when we would count the first year of their reign. Even if they started before that, they wouldn't count it until that particular date. There's nothing really significant that happens on that particular new year. The third new year is on the first day of the month of Elul. Elul comes around August, and that's the, first, that's the, the new year for animals. It's for animals because um, the Bible needs to know when, and you know, there was sacrifice in the Bible, and they need to know what animals were in their first year, what animals were in their second year. So August 1st, and anybody who deals, who's, who comes from farming or rural areas, or I lived in Kentucky for a long time, knows that animals are born in the spring. Or horses, they like horses to be born in January, February, racehorses to be born in January, February, and March, because the Kentucky Derby is in May, and you have to be a three-year-old, so you want your horse to be as old as possible in the three-year. You don't want a horse born in August, and it's only two and a half racing against a three-and-a-half-year-old horse. So what you learn. <clears throat> um, so that's the New Year. Of the, so the fourth New Year's is the New Year for, um, that determines fruits, when fruits are new fruits or when they're old fruits. So this comes, most fruit, you know, has, has been more or less is done by that, that point. So the first, it's always close to when the almond trees begin to blossom. If you've ever gone to Washington and seen the cherry blossom trees, almond trees are the same kind of beauty. They all come out at the same time. They're sort of whitish. They're all up in the lower Galilee of Israel. This, it looks like snow up there. And so Tu is the became the holiday of nature, the holiday of the, they call it the holiday of the trees. So uh, we have now rituals that surround all this that the kids participate in and they get a chance to learn about uh, the, the fruits and vegetables that come out of, out of Israel and things like that. So here's a prayer that was written by a, a colleague of mine. Source of creation and life of the universe, we gather together on Tu as Jews of conscience with a deep spiritual bond to your natural wonders to affirm and preserve creation. We are grateful for creation in all its majesty, the ever-flowing waters, the azure blue skies, the complex life of earth's forests, 
the myriad of life forms, amoeba and falcon, black-footed ferret and wild turkey, human being and soaring eagle. The life of all creatures and our own lives are one, profoundly dependent upon each other. We all we call our ancient Torah scroll, our ancient scroll of wisdom, the Torah, an Eitz Chaim, a tree of life, for it, like the earth's great forest, sustain us. Torah teaches us that creation in its great diversity is harmoniously interconnected. Like the trees, we too need strong and deep roots for nourishment. The uplifted branches of trees point to our future. God let us be strong, as strong as ancient trees. The psalmist was right when he said, like a tree planted by the waters, we shall not be moved. We are grateful for the life we are lent. We pledge to lift up our voices both in praise of you and in defense of your creation. And that concludes my presentation. So you guys have any questions, comments? Yes. <sighs> Can you just play the slideshow from the beginning? <laughs> Rosh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely, interpretation changes. Uh, sometimes interpretation gets better. Sometimes it gets just different. Um, but I can guarantee that's why you have Rashi a thousand years ago, these guys. When they were reading that, they weren't thinking about environment or ecology or anything like that. Um, today, nobody would read it the way that Rashi and Nachmanides read it. But interpretation, see, and I know that in, uh, in your traditions, you don't just read the scripture. You read the scripture and there's a sermon that comes with it. There's a, a deepening of it. You study it in classes. You try, what is this text trying to teach us? What is it trying to say to us? It's groups that don't want to have that conversation. I want to be told this is exactly what it says that I struggle with. So who knows what, maybe in a thousand years it'll be understood differently. Maybe it'll be, sub, maybe it'll be the sheep subduing it. <laughs> yeah. Other comments? Yes, sir. I'm very much with you. I had one question on your Psalm 33. Okay. Uh, I think you had it as one, the, the, like the person that was doing that. And as I read that passage, I see it as being God, not mankind, humankind. And I think that that might change a little bit of the interpretation well, that we we're can, blessed we can find that out because just God. give me a second and let me look at the yeah. Hebrew so, that's an interesting Psalm Yes, you're correct. When one loves righteousness or underneath that? No, that's a commentary. Yeah, that's a commentary. Yeah, the, 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 the psalm would be in the quotes there. Yeah, so it is God. For the, the passage above, for the word of the Lord is right and all his works are done in faithfulness. God loves righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Oh, wait a minute. If I understand it, God But in this particular passage, it's not that we're to do that. It's that it's, this is what God is doing. Is that, am I making sense? Yeah. I, I'm not Give me one necessarily more arguing with the overall point, but how we get to it. Yes, you're right. Yeah. One of the most interesting things we did for those of us that uh, 
went to Israel uh, was to go out and plant a tree mm -hmm. and as part of the reforestation uh, thing that's going on over there, which I don't think most people know about. But I've always wondered, you know, is my tree still growing over there? And also, how much, how much more of the land, you know, has been covered or how that uh, whole process yeah. is proceeding over there. So it's hard. So there's the old joke in, in Judaism, there's, it's the Jewish National Fund that, that controls most of the forests where these trees are planted. And um, there's always this funny card that sometimes you'll give when you make this contribution that a tree has been donated and, and you're honored to Israel and you open up the card and your day to water it is Thursday. <laughs> So who knows? Uh, not every tree that's planted there necessarily uh, lives, but they're all hooked up to the system. You saw those little black hoses that are there to help get them to live. So when in the early 20th century, when the settlers of the Jewish settlers started leaving uh, uh, Russia and the Ukraine and Poland and coming to Israel, they found a land that was pretty barren. But we also know that 5,000 years ago, and even 4,000, even 3,000, that Israel was a very forested country. Because as they talk about the different animals in the Bible, you get animals that need forest and forested kind of lands to be able to exist. So this is a long answer to your question. But it's armies. Think about all the armies that have marched through. Think about all of the wood they needed for, for cooking and for warmth and for armaments and all these things. They didn't plant when they were cutting down, which is why when you get to someone like Honi, which is coming after the destruction of the temple, the recognition is there that we need to be able to do something. So by the time you get to the 19th and 20th century, there was, not, there was nothing left. So the Jewish National Fund made a commitment to start planting trees. And I remember at the beginning of the 21st century reading that in Israel, over the 100 years, that they had planted more than 100 million trees. But not all those trees exist. First of all, we know that pine trees have a shorter life, and a lot of the trees they started with were pine trees. Why? Because pine trees have shallow roots, but they'll hold the roots in place, and so they can put in some of the, the stronger trees. And, so, and it's very possible that you weren't even planting a pine tree this time. You may have been planting something with, that are going to have deeper, uh, stronger roots to it. So, uh, and that was 20 years ago. There's got to have been another 20 million trees planted uh, since then. They're never going to forest the whole land, but they're trying. It, it has changed, from what I understand, some of the climate in that part of the world because of all of the trees that have been planted. Israel has planted more trees in Israel than most, most of the rest of the world has planted in their, in their countries. So, yeah. Old Testament, they refer to Yahweh, they refer to Elohim. Are they synonymous or is there a difference in the meaning of those two concepts of okay. God in Hebrew? Right. So there's, uh, essentially, we were having this conversation with something else just recently. So the, God is called uh, two different names. I know we talked about it a little bit here. In the very first words of Genesis, uh, Bereshit uh, bara Elohim. So Elohim, that word for God, is used in the very first verse in, uh, in the Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, refers to God. In the second chapter, the, when they refer to God, they use the yud heh vav -Hey, which some people translate as Yahweh, some as Jehovah. Nobody knows how it's pronounced anymore because it was only pronounced one time a year on Yom Kippur in the afternoon when the temple was destroyed. No longer was it pronounced. And the, and the pronunciation, it's a weird constructed word, and no one knows how it's pronounced anymore. So sometimes they, they're guesses at it. They mean the same thing in general, but the rabbis interpret it to mean a little bit different when they see the name. Sometimes Adonai would be, whenever you see the word yud heh vav -Hey, the the Yahweh name, it would be, they would see this is the God of justice, and Elohim was the God of mercy, but those are interpretations. They're still God. The weird part is that Elohim is a plural. Um, and we know there's only one God, but the verb that goes with Elohim is a singular. And that's why they know that even though the word is written in a plural form, it's a singular. So how one understands it at that point is God has many attributes. Man, God has many different ways of, you know, many ways of thinking about God. So that's why they have that. It's a very good question with not an easy answer. 
That could be a whole nother subject. We'll let Reverend Wallace do that. <laughs> yeah, yes, sir. Oh, no. We all have a responsibility, and we all are part of this tradition. And we need to embrace this uh, tradition. And for me, the environmental world and the, and the ecology of this world has been a part of my life for so long. I'm not perfect. I, you know, I pollute like other people pollute, but I also try to manage my, my, my footsteps. Yeah. Uh, John, before, uh, before we close our time, I wonder, I, this, I, I just love this whole story of Honey, and um, I, I was hearing it and, and thinking through everything. Um, you've been involved with, particularly with Habitat mm-hmm. as well, and I wonder if you could give us a 60-second snippet about faith build so we kind of know ah. what's going on because this is are you guys gonna be part of it i i hope so that's okay. our intention okay so habitat uh i heard about this early i'm very deep i like working with my hands as, as my friends know i have a whole workshop i spend a lot of time down there i love doing that kind of stuff that's why the pickup truck because you got to have be able to move the wood um my wife doesn't want me to put him in the back of her car anymore. So, <clears throat> um, so Habitat was a natural. And I've been involved with Habitat since 1988 when I was in Lexington, Kentucky. So we've done some interfaith builds in, in different ways. And they had the idea, well, instead of doing interfaith builds, because it, it's sort of, it's a very narrow focus. Let's do this faith build 2020. And they had the idea of getting 36 different religious institutions, each contributing $5,000, Each one of these institutions would only have to build three days of that and building three houses right next to each other over in uh, northeast, in the Harmont area, I think 23rd Street. There was a school there they tore down, and now they have the three lots. The last I heard, they had 32 out of the 36 churches. So if you want to get in, they're not going to do 37. They're not doing 38. They only want 36 churches. This is how it's going to work. $5,000, $180,000. It costs to build a house, $60,000 a house, plus the volunteer volunteer time Um, because 5,000 times 36 equals 180,000 that's how they that's how they came came up with it now 36 is really weird because I went to them and said that's a really interesting number what's half of 36 18 18 is a magic number in Judaism Two Hebrew letters you put together, chet, which is the eighth letter of the, al- of the Hebrew alphabet, and yud, which is the tenth letter, those two letters together equal the word chai. For anybody who's seen Fiddler on the Roof, lechayim, to life. The word chai means life. So kid, bar mitzvah kids, bat mitzvah girls, they get contributions oftentimes in multiples of 18. So 36 is a great number in Judaism. They didn't realize they were doing that, but we, we, I picked up on it right away. So that's why the, 30, the 36. Is it better than seven? Is it better than seven? It's just another magic. Seven's another magic number. No, I mean, they're both, they're both important numbers. So if, this, if Christ Presbyterian would get into this, you would find, first of all, it's, not a, it's a financial commitment, but it's not a huge one. It is a build commitment, but it's not a huge one because it's only three days. And I, so just one more, one more minute there. So Temple Israel has a Habitat crew that we put together three years ago. And have, we initially wanted us to go and do baseboards in different houses. This, we're too old to do baseboards. So we shifted to doors and door casings and putting up the window casings and putting the closet hardware in. And my crew, which has about 11 people, we get anywhere from six to eight we do, we're getting ready to do our seventh house and our last house for this year. We're so good, we get in and out in, in three hours. Seven uh, internal doors, framing, uh, doing the casing around two external doors, doing all three of the closets, and all putting up all the window frames. Everybody comes in. We know what our job is. We just get to work. They don't, there's none of the, well, let me tell you about safety. We, do, we come in, we start working. But so I've also said that none of those people who work on the Habitat crew can work on this house. Because <laughs> I'm a, a I'm a volunteer I'm a Habitat volunteer as well. So even if I'm not working, I'll be there and visible. Yeah, I'm still a woodworker. I am very very safety uh, conscious and paranoid of my table saw. I should have bought a saw stop. They're just expensive. And if you've never seen uh, seen a saw stop table saw, 
if you know how to use YouTube, and you go and Google saw stop video, it's five minutes. The saw stop is the most amazing invention ever, but you have to watch the five minutes to the end. Trust me. When you get to the end, you're going like, Ugh. it's amazing. I should have bought one, but they're just like three times as expensive as any other table saw. So, <laughs> Rabbi, thank yes. you so much for coming this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And uh, let us uh, go on to service with prayer. Almighty God, again, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, the opportunity to learn from uh, Rabbi John here. We thank you um, for all that you are teaching us and the ways that we are learning. We pray that we may leave here changed, considering all these things on, in our hearts and considering that we indeed, like uh, Honi, have to um, Realize that we plant trees not for today, but for the future. We give this day all that we are and say over to you, Almighty God and Father. Amen.